Welcome to the Business of Software podcast, where we share talks from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. You can find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Welcome to another Boss podcast. I'm Kirk Bailey, and this is episode seven with Dame Stephanie Shirley and her Boss Europe 2019 appearance, New Ways of Working. Dame Stephanie, or Steve as she's also known, was the first female master of the IT livery company, the first female president of the Chartered British Computer Society, and the UK's ambassador for philanthropy in 2009 to 2010. Her charity, the Shirley Foundation, spent out on October 2018, having donated over £50 million in grants, funding over 100 projects. In this discussion, Dame Stephanie talks with Mark about the glass ceiling, work-life balance, and what she has learned from her decades of entrepreneurial wisdom. Don't forget to register for the Boss Newsletter and get new talks and insights direct to your inbox. Visit businessofsoftware.org slash update to find out more. Happy listening. I'm slightly worried because my memory has gone and I'm not going to be able to add to this wonderful diagram because I'm really talking about completely different things. So we'll do our best, shall we? Okay, great. Um, So thank you very much indeed for coming along. I wanted to um, talk to you about a few things and sort of just run through um, a little bit of your, um, your background. Um, talk about how you set up um, the freelance programmers company and some of the some of the reasons um, that that was successful, and then move on to talk about some of the things you've done more latterly. Um, because I think one of the things that struck me reading your book is that a lot of the things that you learned as an entrepreneur you've applied to philanthropy as well. Mm-hmm. So um, let's uh, let's start um, at the beginning. You came came over to England. Um, very difficult circumstances, and I think I think that's really the sort of beginning of the. Yes, I think that traumatic start in life. I was five years old when I went to a new country, new family, new language, new food, new everything. But that change, which I did manage to cope with, led to the confidence that, oh, I can deal with that change. I can deal with most of the changes that life has thrown at me. And it had really three impacts, some of which are relevant to um, business. I realized that because I could deal with change, I actually enjoyed change and could make it happen. And that each week could be different to last week and I would never hit my boredom threshold. Um, I also knew that the life that was saved, um, I really needed to make it worth saving. And so I don't fritter my time away. Uh, I have become a very serious person. Um, And finally, of course, I'm a patriot. Um, I I love this country that took me in as a child refugee uh, with a passion that perhaps Mm. only someone who has lost their human rights can feel. So it's really made an enormous difference to my life. And that is as strong today as it was 75 years ago, and that's what, you know, I thought I'd get over it, but it still drives me to make sure that each day is part of a life worth saving. Does that, and that's something that's very clear in your book, it's very clear in the the conversations I've had with you and in the interviews I've seen with you, there is that real focus on it. Does that put too much pressure on you? Do you ever feel overwhelmed by that pressure? I... 
I felt overwhelmed frequently in my company's development and with different sorts of things. To begin with, I was overwhelmed because I didn't know anything at all about business. Girls of my generation were not taught even the rudiments of, of, of commerce. Um, then I felt overwhelmed because I'm a tech, tech guy, or was, um, and suddenly I find myself managing people, and that's... I didn't know how to do that either. Um, and later still, when I w became competent, I was never an inspired manager. I think I'm more of a leader. I know where it is that we're trying to get. Um, but then when I was um, competent as a manager, then having to stand back and let professional managers take over for me and slaughter a whole lot of sacred cows because they saw the company's future quite differently to how I did. Thank you. Um, so the, the point when you started to set your own business up, we were thinking about it, there's obviously been, you've been through a process and some of it was on the video. You'd started out in the post office and you got fed up one too many times. You spent some time in Vienna to kind of clear your head, I guess, at the end of 1959. Um, 1962 was the, was the moment. What, what was going on in those, those sort of couple of years, and, and, and how, did you, how did you come to decide you had to do this, and, and in such a different way? I was so enjoying my, my business life. I, I worked in a, the public sector, uh, and then I worked for a very small, um, young computer company called Computer Developments Limited that was responsible for the development of the ICT um, 1301, which had unbuffered peripherals for those who were interested in things like that. Um, <laughs> but um, the change to that really drove my decision to go into business was because I hit the glass ceiling. And I think that came out in, in the film. Um, it happens once, it happens twice. You learn to, do, to cope in a different way. Um, I had a sexist bully of a boss at one time. And eventually I just got fed up with it. And I said, I want to create the sort of company that I wanted to work for, where people worked collegiately, where um, I could help you in the morning, I could ask for your help in the afternoon, where it was very much a team spirit. And therefore, a lot of other women of my generation were interested in joining me. So it started very much as a crusade for women, um, a crusade for a new form of working. Very, what do women want from work? It, even today, there are two things that come up over and over again. Um, Work-life balance. Well, frankly, I've never got that, but that's what people want. Um, and flexibility. And that I provided to the extreme. So we had part-time, full-time, min-max contracts, zero-hour contracts, consultancy, um, annual contracts, uh, homeworking, a lot of homeworking. Um, and eventually, um, <coughs> somebody came forward and said, well, we have employer, husband and wife team. We said, well, why not? So we then started job shares. So flexibility to the extreme, even to the extent of um, remunerating people from a cafeteria of benefits so that they would say at the end of, um, in fact, it was six months, uh, each six months they would sort of say they wanted their remuneration so much in direct pay, salary, uh, and so much in indirect pay, better company car, more holidays, this sort of thing. 
Um, so it became a very different sort of company. And I look back now uh, with pride at our commercial success, which took a long, long time. Uh, but I also look back with pride because I, I think we were the forerunner of the gig economy. We had people flexing around the whole time, and that is how the world is going now. People say, didn't she have a lot of vision? Well, I didn't at all. It was just a, a way of working. Well, it's a way of, of working that people hadn't really been thinking about no. up to that time, and I think there's... You know, even people in the audience here today who are talking about the age of remote work um, and the tools that enable that to happen. I'm talking about 1962, <coughs> so 50 years ago, and though I am so disappointed that some things haven't moved as fast as I would have dreamt. <laughs> so the plan was you had a team of people who were programming. You were in an office. Um, we were um, talking earlier on, and one of the things that people were saying is, you're founding this business five years, seven years before email was invented. <laughs> um, how was communication happening across the... Well, we, our team worked, worked with a simple telephone. Um, <laughs> we even used to ask applicants, because we were all working from home, we, do you have access to a telephone? Not do you have a telephone, do you have <laughs> access to a telephone? So I think the point that I want to make is not really the technology, it's much more the management style that allows you to work in some of these new ways. And um, it worked with fairly conventional um, structures, um, but rather unconventional communications. If you're working remotely, and the same applies if you're working internationally, you really have to make sure that what you are saying is clearly understood at the other end. And we finished up with half our um, staff in India, and, you know, very different cultures, and how do you make that work? And it is by getting to know each other and by making sure that each time you communicate from A to B, the receiver has really understood what it is that you're saying and that you're listening as well. Mm. And to give you a little context or give them a little context about the type of projects that you were working on. Well, one some... of the, the first projects we had was not what I was expecting, but it was management control protocols for a, a, an international consultancy, Oic Diebold. And um, we used those standards ourselves to control software. So we began to get a reputation for being in command of software. We were one of the first to um, offer software on a fixed-price basis. Uh, another early one was um, the black-box flight recorder for supersonic Concorde, and that was you know, taking a lot of uh, technical analog readings from dozens and dozens of, of instruments, um, measuring acceleration and height and God knows what, um, and putting them all into a best-protected black box. And, um, those boxes not actually black. The, the only one I've ever seen uh, was bright yellow because it's there for emergency. Uh, but nevertheless, you get the concept of you know, a vast team of 30 people actually delivering this while, while it was still on the, the Concorde was still on the drawing board. Wow. Um, we'll get back to that later on in the conversation, I think, because there's all sorts of things with aircraft control systems software um, in the news at the moment. But... Uh, 
as you grew the business, um, you were taking a pretty enlightened view on your um, employees, and you were paying your employees, and you got to a point where you were um, not being paid for the work you were doing, and sat down with Kit Grindley um, to talk about what would happen. Can you talk a little bit about how that changed the business and, and, and changed the way you thought about it? Well, I think like many startups, uh, we got to the stage where um, each project ran uh, profitably. There was more money coming in um, than we were spending. Nevertheless, we were getting more and more overdrawn, <coughs> excuse me, and we were getting to a sort of a stage of profitless prosperity because we had lots of business and basically we'd underpriced. And I didn't understand basic things like cash flow. So I pulled, asked for consultancy and actually paid for half a day's consultancy from the, from the, from the very consultants that I'd helped with, with their programming. Um, and um, they came up with the idea of actually gearing the payments to um, the staff to, from, to, to the, the payments from the client. And that got rid of 90% of the cash flow problem straight away. It meant that the relationship with our, we call them a panel, rather, because they were not all employees, but the relationship with that staff panel became even more intimate because they were actually helping to drive, drive the organisation by their skill and by being patient um, for their payment. And if the client didn't pay for three months, we paid anyway. So, I mean, it was, you know, carefully structured. But that led very much to... Um, my desire to actually share the profits um, with the, the team as well. Um, and it seemed only right um, that they should be <clears throat> benefit from when we had successes, which we did eventually get. Um, the um, way in which um, success exhibits itself is very different. Um, I think it's possibly a feminine thing. Um, I I'm so proud of having got um, a quarter of the company into the hands of the workforce at no cost to anyone but me. And that co-ownership um, really made so much difference when I wanted to employ somebody that I couldn't afford to employ. I offered them shares. My first chairman, I paid in shares. My first company secretary, I paid in shares. These were top-class people who helped me at a you know, strategic level, uh, all paid in shares. So I think shares is something that um, is not just something you do later on, um, but something that can be right at the start. Mm. So talk us through the sort of, not necessarily the end game for the business, but the end game for, for you, and we move on to a different phase of your, your life. Um, can you just give us a you? Talk us through, I suppose, the highlights of IPO, if there were any highlights of IPO, and then, and then beyond. We'd gone through a series of acquisitions. Um, I had left the company on retirement um, at the time the company actually floated on the main stock exchange. We did something slightly unusual in that we turned ourselves into a PLC without being quoted. And <clears throat> that got us into the corporate behaviour of a PLC, so that when we actually floated on the stock exchange, it was a more natural thing. 
Um, the bigger it got, frankly, the less I enjoyed it. Um, the bigger it got, the less I had to contribute. At the same time, I felt it was my company and the professionals were coming in without valuing what I had done, the, or the years and years of struggling to get the company going. Because I didn't get any capital. Women in those days, there was no point in trying to raise capital for a woman in business. Um, so it was a painful time after the float um, as the professionals really changed the culture of the company very slowly, um, keeping some of the best bits, the flexibility and the trust between the relationship between the staff, because we went co-ownership. Um, in 2007, <coughs> um, it was acquired <coughs> by what is now part of Sopra Steria, a French group. And a bit of me is disappointed. I, I would have liked to have stayed. But it, the company lasted 45 years. It made me very, very wealthy. And that was not really part of my aim. So what do I do with that wealth? Well, um, the first year I bought my husband some gold cufflinks. <laughs> um, the second year, gold watch. The third year, gold watch strap that went with it. And then I realized, you know, what is I'm doing? Um, we had this handicapped child that was mentioned in the film. And that meant that really some of the things that wealthy people do with their wealth was, was just not particularly open to us if, if we wanted to have a family life at all. And um, so... The giving of a quarter of the company to the staff had given me this idea that there was a lot of um, pleasure in giving, that there was a lot of return um, when you actually give strategically. And um, so gradually I turned into a philanthropist. Nothing to do with collecting stamps. Um, <laughs> but I, I have now tried to use my wealth in a very positive way um, and give, and I've learned to be a philanthropist who can leverage other funds, um, <clears throat> can focus on the things that I know and care about. And there are only two really, uh, and that is information technology and um, autism, which was my late son's disorder. And on the IT side, um, I funded um, the IT livery company in the city of London, number 100, sounds like binary, um, in the um, city's pecking order. And rather more interestingly to you, I guess, um, co-founded the Oxford Internet Institute. That was in the year 2001, so I was well retired by then. Um, and that concentrates not on the technology, I'm not a techie person really, but not on the technology, but the social, economic, legal, and ethical issues of this network of networks. And that has been very satisfying from the IT point of view. Uh, the majority, three quarters of my giving, and it, I think of giving as a sort of social investment, but three quarters of that investment has been uh, for the condition of autism. And I think I've made some difference to that young growth sector of health. Mm. Well, I know a number of people who have um, autism in the family who um, would agree, and I'd love to just spend a little bit of time talking um, about some of the things that you did there, because they were 
very different. And, well, there you go. I'll set them up. <laughs> you, you knock them out of the park then. <laughs> Fairly traditionally, um, the first charity that I set up, um, my son was the first resident in the first home of that first charity, which pioneers um, services for autism. And today, that, <clears throat> that charity uh, employs about 300 people and um, uh, supports 150 people of ex extreme vulnerability, like my son, 24-7. Uh, and um, supports another 100 people who on a one-day-a-week basis. Um, and that, setting that up was very like setting up a company. It's exactly the same process of, of getting some sort of strategic board, getting a chief executive, getting some sort of management structure, getting some, some metrics in. And the um, main, perhaps only difference, is that your measurements are not financial. They are in terms of the quality of life of a vulnerable sector of the community. So that was the first one, and it oh. took me 17 years to get that one sustainable, financially and managerially independent of me. That's a long time to flog. And I, uh, I wasn't <laughs> being full-time, but that's a long time. Now, the second charity only took me five years. Um, and that was a school for pupils with autism uh, that uh, now has about nearly 100 pupils, 600 staff, because these are very vulnerable children. Um, and um, it, it, it has not just the normal school range, 5 to 19, but it also has a young adult centre, 19 to 25. So I'm really trying to... <coughs> um, impact the lives of those people and a lot of people come to see what we're doing. And the third charity is a research charity, Autistica, which funds uh, research into autism um, and that it fundraises and then goes on to fund and, and, and lobbies. Lobbies on things like <coughs> one of the first projects was very much pure research, um, setting up a, an autism brain bank which researchers need and worldwide apply to. Um, nowadays, they're doing more applied research, equally valuable, um, solving issues such as why do autistic women die <coughs> younger than autistic men? So why is it? We, we, we have no idea what, what's going on there. And those three charities together uh, employ a 1,000 people. So again, I find myself in a business environment doing something that is part technical, because I'm using robots um, as teaching robots. Um, I'm using virtual reality. Um, but I'm a, now a, a, an, early, an early user of technology. Fantastic. Um, when we were talking a few weeks ago, you, were, <coughs> you, you spoke about the conference that you organised, which... Sounded pretty spectacular. Um, this was on... Very early on, that was. Yes, um, Back in 99, I think, um, I set up a virtual conference on autism internationally. Um, it had 65,000 people attended internationally uh, from, I think, 83 different countries, and some so small I had to 
get the atlas out to find out where <laughs> on earth the, the, this person was. Um, but that was a sort of, I thought that was a first. Um, in fact, it was the third such conference. I do like to be first. I think <clears throat> first mover advantages are, are grossly exaggerated, but I like to be first because I have that low boredom threshold. <laughs> Um, fantastic. Now, I have to say that um, a lot of the contribution for um, some of the questions that are coming up um, are not for me, and in some ways I don't have the right to ask them, but from um, my daughter here, who um, is an avid reader and has been um, thumbing your book um, uh, and has come up with some fantastic questions. But these are these are around women in technology and um, that, that side of things, and I know that's something that you, you believe strongly about but don't necessarily want to spend um, a huge amount of time on. So um, I guess a couple of questions here. Has the increased representation of powerful, independent young women in the media and society meant that women who choose or have to bring up children um, end up trivialising the second group even more than... Can you repeat that? I'm, I've yes. got too many negatives. So as, as more <laughs> fantastic role models for entrepreneurs and yeah. business people who are um, successful women, and that's the way of framing women in society, is that actually doing down um, people who aren't in that position? And is that a problem? Well, I mean, the fact remains that most of us are average, and <clears throat> that's all that women want, really, to be accepted for what they are, and whether you're high-performing or low-performing, um, that's the person that you are and you want to be accepted in, in society. Um, it is a fallacy that women are, were not in the industry earlier on. Um, programming actually started from coding and coding at Bletchley Park, that sort of coding, um, <clears throat> which was entirely women, thousands of women um, involved at that stage. And it was, programming was considered coming out of the clerical industry, so it was predominantly women at some time. Then, as it got more interesting, the men came in. <laughs> <laughs> and they took some of those, those jobs. And, um, and now, um, women are opting out of some of those high career paths. Uh, we can discuss, if you like, um, why that should be. <clears throat> but on the technology side, um, they're opting out very early. Yeah. Um, children of seven and eight, uh, the girls are really keen on the technology. And the same girls, 15, 16, find it boring. <clears throat> they view technology as nerdy. Um, they don't enjoy it. And they have backed away. And they are really lost to the industry, which is desperately short yeah. of staff. Have I answered your uh, question? Yes, you have. Now, Violet, here's a... Um, how many... Young women are there in the computer science class at your school? Two. Two. Out I of know. 30. 30. Yeah. And once you've got that imbalance, it, 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 it dis discourages other women to coming in. You know, you look at that class and you oh, I don't think I want to go there. Um, <clears throat> so the imbalance perpetuates itself in the same way as um, bias in artificial intelligence, which I gather you've been talking about. Um, repeats itself and is leveraged uh, by an AI system. Um, so, question for me and for a lot of the people in the room, how can men be better allies? Ah, well, you're very kind. 
<laughs> I think the, the thing that's really ch changed today is that women have always advocated, I've always advocated for women and we looked after each other, it's very much team working. But now we're saying, and it's not just after the Me Too movement, that really the men have to advocate with us and they are starting to do it and that's what makes a difference so thank you for your understanding thank you for your understanding that you're going to give in the future are there things that i mean let's <coughs> are there things that we should be doing and talking about as as men or you know other you know an established established groups in technology are there things that you wish men had been thinking about when you were starting out in your career um, that it's, it's worth pointing out? Or, or, or the... <clears throat> I don't look back 50, 50 years ago and say it should have been this or it should mm. have been that. Um, but the fact is that the gender issue, and if you're a woman in, in tech, you're always asked to comment on women in tech, which is a bit unfair because I have other things to do. Mm. Um, <laughs> um, but... The gender issue is the big one that makes an economic difference to the country. Um, but there are other issues of disparity, and um, I, I work a lot with autism, as I've said, and getting um, people with autism into, the, into employment, much of which can be in the computer industry, because many of them have stereotypically just the sort of focused, sharp minds um, that really will... Um, <coughs> thrive in the computer industry um, and the computer industry mm. will thrive from their involvement. Um, the difference in age, uh, I started working at 18, as you've heard, I'm 85 now. I think you can still have people working at all ages together, uh, different sexual orientation, middle-class people, people of, of diff who've never been to university. There are lots of us about, and we have much to contribute. Yeah, no, here, here. Um, going to touch on the future of tech, and then, if it's okay, take in a few questions from the crowd. I know it's... Um, it's hard work being up here. Um, so um, one of the things that we noticed in the book, um, and I, when I was young, I had vague idea, memories of this. You were using um, knitting needles and <laughs> uh, notched cards for your, for your yeah. records. And one of the questions Violet was, uh, was saying is that, so that was working for you in the, in the 60s. We've now got AI-enabled machine learning robotics on the blockchain, bloody blah. Yeah. Is it any better? Oh, of course it is. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think the world today is, is, is really very exciting. Um, it's still changing at an enormous rate. Um, it'll never be a slower change in the future either. It's just mm. going. Um, it's, um, you have the opportunity of contributing um, to your profession, um, your, your company, your country. Um, and, and that, I think, is a wonderful thing that IT is permeating society now. I mean, you must feel that too. Yes, and sometimes not in a good way. I think some, yeah. of, the, um, some of the things we've talked about today are really, are really interesting and have reframed some of the ways people think about technology and, and how it can be of benefit to, to humanity. Um, 
and I, you know, I encourage that sort of thinking, obviously. But uh, do you um, think other people encourage that sort of thinking? Uh, no. So I have this theory that we've got about twenty generations left at most, oh, and that oh. our human brains are about half a million years yeah. behind in their evolution. And now we've worked out how to kind of hmm. um, prod the right things at the front of front of your brain. Um, we're doing it to to make money sometimes without thinking about whether that's for good. But I'm amazed how young people multitask. Mm. Um, I mean, that is certainly a, a, a generational issue. Um, and um, that ability, I basically sort of said, what are they doing? They should concentrate, they should focus, and so on. Um, but the children are able to do it. They are enormously well-informed um, mm. and innovative. And, you know, nowadays it's not just a question of making things faster, cheaper, better, um, but actually innovating, making new things, making mm. new concepts. And the kids are good at that, too. Yeah. Um, we're going to round the conversation up, but we'd love to do a few questions, if that's um, OK. Um, ladies and gentlemen, oh, no, I'm going to ask a couple of questions here. Um, you caused a bit of bother, quite frankly, Dame Stephanie, Steve, Shirley, CH, um, because your name doesn't fit on our website. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell me about CH, because that's something that's really quite special. I'm very proud. Um, <clears throat> in 2007 to have been appointed a companion of honor um, to the queen. Um, there are only 65 of us in the world, so it, mine was for contribution at a national level to uh, technology and philanthropy. But what does the, the award actually mean? I've got a great big gong that I could perhaps <laughs> might wear once. Um, I, it was presented to me at Buckingham Palace, which is great, and that, that is it. It is purely a, 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 an honorific um, title that most people say, what's this ch... Oh, get me that some typo. <laughs> um, so the other thing that I'd, I'd love asking people is, is in the film of your life, who would, who would be likely to play you? But actually... Um, there is a film being made about your life. Um, you laugh. So, no, there is. Um, and who do you think will be playing you? Well, I have the right to veto as to the main characters. <laughs> um, the names that are being floated at the moment are um, Kate Winslet and um, what is the other one, Lynn? Emily Blunt, that's right. So these are good names. We have um, directors who have... Uh, uh, directed The Lady in the Van uh, and uh, The Iron Lady, so I shall be in good company. Wow. So do you associate yourself with The Lady in the Van or the... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, Dave Stephanie, Steve Shirley, thank you so much. Are we going to have questions there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just quickly. So we have uh, quickfire questions. Yes, we're going to start here. Hello, uh, this is Sharon. Sharon is over here, sorry. Well, hi. Yeah. Hi, oh, thank you. Um, so, last night I started to um, read your book and I cried the whole night. <laughs> um, so, it's, it's very much related to my early childhood and uh, my early years uh, in this country. Um, and uh, I think um, everything boils down to the end is about people 
and the people like you and Poppy that actually have passion and have uh, um, the ability to make things happen. So I love that you said actually you didn't have a vision and Poppy didn't foresee this 1.6 billion pounds ahead of her. Actually, business ideas uh, can evolve and uh, uh, business model can change. In the end, it's the people that can make it happen. Um, and when Derek asked after uh, when everybody's gone, whether you still have your business. I mean, again, it's not the business and the idea, it's the people. I, I believe if there's nobody goes to Mark's conference, you will still find something that you love and you're passionate about and to do. And uh, I, I just wanted to thank you for your, your love for life and your love for other people really inspired us. And, and I think that's the foundation of uh, having a successful life or business, um, yeah, everything. Well, thank, uh, thank you for this. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for coming to talk to us. Well, I will. So normally we have a, when people make a statement rather than a question, the microphone explodes, but I'll let that one pass because that was very good. Um, question? Sorry. Thank you. Um, you sure. touched on something just very briefly and that was that people can do great things. And of course, we've talked about women in the workforce and in technology, but you mentioned older people. And that is uh, something that we're seeing now in, in the technology industry is a pretty big discrimination against anyone who is maybe over the age of 40. Mm. A lot of startups are just uh, getting younger people. They do it under the guise of uh, they're smarter, but really what I think it is is they're cheaper. What can we do to help the um, age discrimination that we're seeing in the tech industry right now? Well, I would have thought the opportunity to get older, wiser people into an organization at a managerial or strategic level it just can't, can't be missed. Because when you're, you're, you know, we have this technology which is so fascinating, um, but we forget the people issue, we forget some of the politics, we forget what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, and your older contributors can really help you in that way. So I think the only way in which you're going to get older people in is to realize that we actually have some skills and try a few, see what happens. Uh, some of them are very <gasps> tired. <laughs> okay, I'm going to take that massive hint that we're going to squeeze two quick questions in. Right. Can't see. Um, hi, my name's Alistair. Thank you, Dame Shirley, for um, spending the time with us. Really appreciate that. Um, I have a question which I think you might be in a unique position to answer, which is how do you think schooling and parenting needs to adapt for the future that we're all creating? That's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> I think we're using technology in teaching a lot more. As I say, I'm using a robot with special ed education. Um, I think that will apply very much more. Um, I think we're using virtual reality in, in the schools for teaching, for um, experience, for um, developing people, as children as, as whole people. Um, and there must be other technologies of which, which, I, which I don't know. The parents, I think, have... I mean, I think some of the schools can work with the parents. 
Um, and the parental influence is, of course, enormous. Um, we haven't really discussed where innovation comes from, but in a family where the parents are innovative, the children will get in the habit of, oh, we could do a so-and-so. Oh, what about so-and-so? Supposing you turn it upside down, will it be the same? If, you know, or we've just got a black hole um, photographed for the first time. Do we talk about this with our children and the, the, you know, the significance of, of astrophysics like that? Um, so I think a lot comes from the parents, and um, I, I don't have any wonderful things except in individual families. Make sure that you really respect your children um, and listen to them, because they have much to say. Thank you. Um, and our final question is, what words of advice would you give a young woman starting out on a career in tech or thinking about it? Well, it's pretty enthusiastic, because I'm a class half full sort of person. Um, but basically, um, I think for a woman starting off, you, you, you have to start off by not underestimating your own capability. The whole of the world mm. sort of tends to think, you know, uh, but you don't underestimate yourself. And choose something that you really enjoy, um, perhaps something that has a little frisson of fear in, a, a, attached. Get trained in it and then just start and go for it and see how you get on. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.